Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. Today's Old Testament reading is Hosea 5, 1 through 15. Hear this, O priests, pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of Hordam is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarma at Beth-Avon. We will follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. The New Testament reading is Matthew 19, 16 through 30. Then behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? 
But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on its glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. to be here with you all. Uh, my name is Jefferson Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at CPC, and if I haven't met you yet, uh, I'd love to get a chance to do that after the service. Um, we've already experienced so much in this service, uh, haven't we? Uh, we've praised God, we've confessed sin, we've received his assurance of pardon, and we've heard that there is nothing that can separate us from his love because Jesus has come. And yet, here we come to the word two passages, and um, uh, I've put in the bullets in there an image of a painting, and the image of that painting is, uh, is of a historical event, actually. It is the story of uh, a young six-year-old, John Wesley, and he is being pulled from the house, uh, from a house fire in England in 1709, uh, this young Wesley, who many of you will know later founded the Methodist Christian Reform Movement, was one of his 18 siblings that was left behind in the house fire. The family only found out that John was left in the house when he appeared in a second-story window with flames engulfing the roof and the floor below him. And so in a moment of sheer panic, all the neighbors and family members just sort of rushed to the fiery house and build this sort of human ladder to come and rescue the boy from the flames moments before the roof collapsed on the house. And I share that to say that when a house is on fire, everyone knows that you get out as fast as you can. Right? Uh, if anyone's left behind, you do anything necessary to get them out and if your clothes in the process catch fire, who knows what to do? Stop, drop, and roll. That's right. You get out. Our passage this morning is from Hosea chapter 5, which was just read. And much like John Wesley's home, um, the house of Israel is on the brink of collapse. Hosea is sounding the alarm, so to speak, to let this northern nation know uh, that a fire is coming and it's going to burn everything to the ground. And so the title of this sermon this morning is Stop, Drop, and Roll Out, The Reckoning and Rescuing of Jesus Christ 
from a house on fire. And we're gonna have two main points this morning. The first, we'll look at the house on fire, and the second, we'll look at the reckoning and rescuing of Jesus Christ for his people. But first, let's pray. Father, you are our rock, you are our redeemer, and we pray that you would be with us, fully with us as we hear your word now, and as we look to you, the one who can heal every wound, every sin, every pain, restore us in Christ Jesus, we pray, amen. Amen. So a house on fire. Um, Hosea chapter 4 through 14 uh, is written in a unique genre that many of us are familiar with called poetry. So there's a lot of imagery in these, uh, these 10 chapters that close out the prophecy. It's a lot of repetition, a lot of metaphors, which makes literal interpretation challenging at times. But the overall mood and message of Hosea's prophecy as he closes out this book is very clear. It's unmistakable, in fact. Hosea, as a prophet and as a book, is, is, is trying to communicate one thing. It exists because of one thing. One thing leads God to call Hosea to marry a prostitute, Gomer, and to prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel. Can you name that one thing? It's idolatry. Idolatry is the one thing. Some of you might be wondering, wait, idolatry, like, you mean those little carved dolls that people in the ancient world used to put in their houses and bow down to and pray to? Well, kind of. Uh, but it's not the dolls that's really the problem. Many of you grew up with dolls, or my kids have action figures and dolls in the house everywhere, right? It's not so much the fact that we have these dolls. It's, it's what these dolls represent. It's what they represented. That was the problem. And what they represented was a replacement for God himself. And they gave people in the ancient world a real sense of control and a real sense of comfort. So a little history on the nation of Israel here might be helpful. See, for 200 years, since this northern kingdom's inception, Israel, uh, or sometimes called Ephraim here in Hosea, it had prospered. Agriculturally, had prospered. Socially, they had prospered. Financially, they had prospered. They were doing great. And they were doing it all by worshiping the true God in, at one time, and at the same time, worshiping and honoring all these foreign gods, these idols, the next. So they were prospering by living with one foot in one camp, the true God camp, and one foot in another camp, the idol camp. And it was working. It seemed to be working. It seemed that by doing this, they could kind of control their own destiny. They could secure their own comfort by having one foot in the true God camp and another in the idol's. Not only does this bring about a sense of control for these folks and comfort, right, via the flourishing that's happening, but it also brought with it acceptance into the community of foreigners who now feel much more at ease, right, that their gods are honored, uh, their temples are being built, their practices are approved of and even celebrated. Yet God had been warning Israel over and over and over again throughout these 200 years 
not to go running off to these foreign idols, not to be forsaking their one true provider and king, God himself. We see this in the history of 1 Kings chapter 12. The first king of this northern kingdom after the split between the north and the south, King Jeroboam, makes golden calves for the nation to worship. Puts them up on two hills and says, we're going to worship these golden calves right from the start. And the very next chapter, a prophet of God is forbidden by God to even go into the house of the king, Jeroboam, because it had been tainted by idolatry. Ironically, one of the mountains this happened at was at Bethel, which means house of God. And this idolatry takes place right there where God's house should have been. It's now a house of idols. So in Hosea chapter 5, we get this picture. In verses 3 through 7, you get this taste for how things have gone, how bad they've gotten. Verse 3 and 4 says that the idolatry, God knows it, And then it says that it's caused Israel to no longer know God. God sees it, and they are missing the Lord in the process. It's like a friend of mine once asked a taxi driver in England. She said, you seem to know a lot about God. She said, but do you know God? Israel knew a lot about God. They were still going to the temple. They were still ticking off the the boxes to say, hey, we are still in this covenant here. But they no longer knew God relationally or cared about his word or his ways. He had just become one of many options for securing control and comfort. Hence, this spirit of whoredom in Israel has led them to cheat on God with these idols. And why? Well, verse 5 says... It's kind of due to pride, right? He says their pride is right in the face of God. Building oneself up to his level, coming up to his level and saying, I can take it from here. I know how to do this. I can take care of myself. And it's for that reason God says, I'm walking away. In verses six and seven, they'll go to worship the true God But they won't find him. Why? Because he has withdrawn from them. It's not a pretty picture, is it? In the New Testament, we read Matthew 19 for two reasons. And you're going to get a full sermon uh, on this from Preston in a couple weeks, so I'm going to be brief here. But the reasons that we chose Matthew 19 is, one, the idolatry of this obedient but rich young ruler it's idolatry, and two, the security and the authority that the apostles have, so the juxtaposition between these two. The idolatry of the rich and obedient young ruler is clear. He's been keeping the law, we saw, right? He believed in God. He wanted to follow him. He said, all these things I've done to Jesus, and that's why he's approaching Jesus at all, right? I mean, he cares. Outwardly, he's been doing what God requires, but inwardly, Jesus wasn't so sure In our context, this would be sort of like a member in good standing of church coming up and saying, okay, what am I missing? And we read that the answer was not to his liking. 
such that rather than rejoicing that the Messiah had come, rejoicing at an invitation to walk with the Son of God, he leaves sad. Why? Well, Jesus said, go and sell all your possessions and then come and follow me. But do you think that's why he was sad? Because he had to give up some stuff? I mean, we all know stuff comes, right? Stuff goes. You know, it's kind of the ebb and flow of life. I don't know if he was upset because of the stuff. I think he was upset because he was afraid of losing his God. His real God. And it turns out his real God wasn't the real God, but an idol. He wasn't just rich, Jesus says, which is near impossible to overcome. Not impossible, but near impossible. But this man's also a ruler, which means what? It means he's in charge, right? He's got control, right? He snaps his finger, things happen. Jesus says, leave all of that and come and follow me. Leave your comfort, leave your control. They don't last. Come and follow me. We'll talk about the apostles' security and authority in a few minutes, but I want to dive, dive a bit deeper into this idolatry business for a second. Now, thankfully, the New Testament defines idolatry for us because I know for some of us it would be a real challenge, right, to imagine, okay, what does the doll in a house above the mantle represent in this world where we, we don't do that so much anymore in the West? The New Testament defines it and makes it really easy for us it talks about the spiritual nature behind these idols, right? What they represent. And it says it comes from the heart. It comes from this heart that wants more. A heart that wants more. More of what? More of anything. Just more. God gave me this. Yeah, but I really want that over there. That person has. Okay, I get that. Oh, that was nice for a few days, right? Now what? I want more than this, right? That's why after every team wins a championship and they ask them, what are they going to do for next year? What do they say? We're going to win another championship, right? <laughs> but you just won one. You just rejoice, relax. You're, you're good. No, we want more. I want it again, I want more. The Bible calls this covetousness. Colossians 3.5 says, put to death, da 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 covetousness, which is idolatry. Hmm. Now, where have we been warned of covetousness before, guys? Ten Commandments? The Tenth Commandment, right? In Exodus 20.17, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, Anybody watch HGTV? Thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife. Anybody watch the rest of TV? Or his male or female servant? Success. Promotion. Or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Guys, this hit me like a ton of bricks this week. And it's still rocking me a little bit. God starts and ends the Ten Commandments with essentially the same commandment. 
Did you catch that? First commandment is what? Have no other gods before me. Tenth commandment is don't want anything else, which the New Testament says is idolatry. It's like bookending the law and saying, I'm it. Don't go elsewhere. It's me. And that's how serious Israel's sin of idolatry and covetousness is. Do you notice in verse 10 of Hosea 5 where it gets to Judah, the southern kingdom? Right? Uh, Hosea hasn't forgotten about them either. In verse 10, the sin is what? Moving the landmark. That is, secretly stealing land from their northern neighbors, moving the landmark, trying to gain more, expand their borders. Covetousness, idolatry. It's the same thing as the north. And both of the houses are going to burn to the ground because of it. Now, up in the north, Hosea, we've already said, is called to marry a prostitute, Gomer, in order to portray what God's relationship is like with Israel when she worships other gods. But it's no coincidence that the worship of these other gods involves temple prostitution. It's no coincidence Hosea is called to marry a prostitute when, in fact, a lot of what worshiping the other idols involved was this temple prostitution. Hosea 4.14, which Jerry preached on last week, says, For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes, and they sacrifice with these cult prostitutes. It's also no coincidence that in the New Testament, the first sin to be named in the lists of covetousness and idolatry is almost always sexual immorality. I'll give you a couple examples. Galatians 5.19, right before the fruit of the Spirit, it says the works of the flesh are evident, and it starts this long list of sins. It starts with what? Sexual immorality. Ends with what? Orgies. And right in the middle is idolatry. Idolatry is right in the middle. I don't think that's coincidence. Ephesians 5.5, 5, same thing. You may be sure. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Colossians 3, 5, same. Sexual immorality and covetousness, they're almost always linked. There's something about having more, being unsatisfied with what I have now, with what God has entrusted to me here, and going off and looking for more. It's almost like, it's almost like that sin right, of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden of wanting more, wanting what they don't have, that forbidden fruit. It's almost like that sin just sort of echoes through the ages. I gotta have what I don't have. And this idolatry, God says, is a big deal. Some of you know um, that the, uh, the musician, John Mayer, was born and raised just next door in Fairfield, Connecticut. Um, He's one of the most famous musicians in the world, right? He goes all over. People know him all across the globe. He's got talent. He's got money. He's got comfort, power. He's got everything that someone in the world could want. But he knows all too well, unfortunately, the power of idolatry. In a Rolling Stone magazine about a decade ago, Mayer confessed that 
he was unable to get out of bed in the morning before looking at hundreds of women on his phone. Unable to get out of bed before he had scrolled and scrolled and coveted and worshipped these images. It had gotten so bad that he said that when he's out in public and he's on a date and he's with women, he said he can't even enjoy real people anymore. He has to go back in his mind to the images, to these idols that enslave him, that sort of trapped him. This sex, this covetousness, this this idol that just sort of ruled his life grew and grew and grew. This is what G.K. Beale meant in his title of his book, We Become What We Worship. Right? We become what we worship. In other words, we become enslaved to the things that we worship and we become just like them. Mayor isn't in control anymore. He's controlled. His idols tell him when he can sleep, when he can wake, when he can eat, what to think, who to befriend, on and on it goes. And these idols just burn away at our house, burn away at the worshiper. So I want you to think for yourselves this morning, here in this room, online, downstairs, do you have any of the early makings of an idol in your life? Anything in your life that's always driving you for more, to be dissatisfied, to be discontent where you are, anything that you can think of. If you do, you'll notice you start to become like that thing, whatever it is. If you have a full-blown idol in your life right now, then you're already like it, whether you like it or not. I'm not prone to gamble, but if I were to make a bet right now, I would bet that close to half the folks within the sound of my voice are thinking of something right now and saying, yeah, that is really close to an idol in my life. You can smell the smoke, right? You can feel that desire for more, and it's likely that there's an idol there. Could be lust, could be greed, could be gluttony, or any other form of covetousness. My kids on the car right here were like, what's an idol? And I said, anything can be an idol. Anything you go to for more than what God is offering you. And the plea this morning is to get out of the house. Get out of that house of idolatry. Get out and save yourselves. Now, some of you in the room are still scratching your head and going, "Uh, do I have an idol? I don't know. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. And that's cool. Some of us in the room, I know, I've had conversations with folks here who have done really hard work at naming their idols, right, at fleeing from them, of saying, this has got to go. Uh, 
in order for me to walk with the Lord, in order for me to follow Jesus. This has got to go, and that's great. If that's you, praise God, that you can then be of help in your neighbor's lives, your friend's lives, your spouse's life. You can be of help in saying, where are the idols that you have to flee? But if you smell the smoke, something's not right in your desires, then seek help. You can ask a pastor, you can ask a close friend. Do you know any idols in my life? Do you see anything? Here's where I'm constantly looking for more. You can ask your roommate today, ask your spouse today, you can ask a parent, ask a friend. Is there anything going on in my life you think I should know about? That's the start. That's Christ in the flesh by his Holy Spirit at work in the church. And that's where the apostles are ruling right now in the flesh. The apostles ruling through the New Testament scriptures. So we're going to the scriptures and we're saying, where are the idols, O Lord? You know, a main purpose for the book of Hosea is to expose just how serious and deadly idolatry is. Craig and Jerry, we've been preaching this series together and it's, we've been talking about that a lot, right? Like, this is a big deal, idolatry. Hosea is trying to tell us. God is telling us through Hosea, this is a big deal. Doesn't matter if it works, right? Doesn't matter if it's comfortable. Doesn't matter if it gives you control on the world around you or even temporarily gives you peace. It's got to stop. Remember, stop, drop, and roll, okay? Stop it, drop it, and roll out of the house. Can you say that with me? Stop it, drop it, and roll out of the house. Get out. Second point, the reckoning and rescuing of Christ. Reckoning is defined by Webster Dictionary as the time when your actions are judged as good or bad and you are rewarded or punished. Time when your actions are weighed, good or bad, and then you're rewarded or punished for it. This reckoning we see in verses 1 and 2, and then again in verses 8 and 9. We see judgment is coming on Israel. Hear ye, hear ye, languages in verse 1, followed by discipline in verse 2. Sound the alarm language in verse 8, followed by judgment in verse And then verse 10 saying, did you catch that? God's going to pour out his wrath like water. He's going to douse the house of fire, the house of idolatry. He's going to douse it with water. Put it out. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he has determined to go after filth, end quote. Now, we don't like to talk about judgment these days, I know. It's not a popular subject, even amongst Christians, right? It's not a popular subject. But you know what we do like to talk about a lot these days? And it's a good thing to talk about. Anybody been talking about justice? We've seen a huge increase in the social justice movements over the past few years, calling all people to be treated fairly, for oppressors to be called to account, for systems that reinforce prejudice and oppression to be condemned and reformed. And justice is like a good thing. It's a godly thing. But for Christians, have a problem here. In Hebrew, the word for judgment and the word for justice is the same word. It's the same word. 
to judge something rightly is to bring justice. Nobody can say, don't judge me, and at the same time say, we need to be about justice. It is the same. It's kind of awkward, because judgment you know, has this negative connotation, but justice has this positive connotation. But there's the same concept in the Bible. So what do we do with this? Well, I think it's important for us to remember that judgment, like judge justice, is a positive thing for those who are, who are judged to be right. Yeah, it's a positive thing if you're judged to be right. Just like justice is negative for those who are in the wrong and are going to be held to account. Not only this, but Christians, we can't be satisfied with just the temporary justice, right? Whenever we speak of the temporary justice, things happening here on earth, we have to always be thinking of the final justice, that final judgment before God, our maker, that everyone will face, right? So we don't diminish the one and we hold both of them together and we say, yes, God calls us to be a people of justice and yet also justice is coming and Christ will judge the whole world. Every sin will be condemned. Every believing heart will be saved and restored by grace. So the Christian can say, yes, social justice matters because there's a God of justice. But we do so with love and humility, knowing that there's a judgment coming. And that if he has not acted graciously, in our lives, if he doesn't do something gracious in our lives, something amazing, something near impossible, Jesus said about the rich young If he doesn't do something near impossible in our lives, then we ourselves will be judged in the wrong, called the oppressors. Even if we're fighting oppression, we can become the oppressors. So we look to God in humility and we say, yes, justice, Lord, but save me, <laughs> save me, because I'm in the wrong far more than I'm in the right. And in Hosea, God's been patiently telling his people, warning them, wooing them, saying, come back to me for a long time. We said it's been 200 years since the northern kingdom, but it's even been longer than that. It was 500 years before that, where Moses in Deuteronomy 28 said, Look, God says, look, if you don't follow me, you're going to be taken into slavery. You're going to go back into slavery. You're going to go back into this world of being controlled by other nations and their gods. It's not a new thing. It's, not a th it's hundreds of years of rebellion. And God says enough. One Scotsman said it this way, we mustn't fear death or Satan. We often think death is our enemy, Satan's our real enemy, we've got to fight these things. Or this camp's my enemy, or that camp's my enemy. He says, no, the person we must fear is God. The one we should fear is God himself. Now, why would I say that? Well, who alone holds every one of ours fate in their hand? It's God. 
he alone. And so those sobering verses at the end of Hosea 5, verses 12 through 14, we see it's God who's in control of this Assyrian invasion that's going to come in the next few years, that it's God who is like a moth or like rot eating away at his people. It says they'll go to Assyria for help, right? And yet God will turn Assyria's heart on them. God will be like a lion to tear and carry off. None shall rescue Israel from the Lord's hands. Now you might be saying, is that, is that the God that I follow? Is that the God that we worship? In what has been called the greatest chapter in the whole Bible, potentially, if that's possible, Romans chapter 8 in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes that even though God can decree suffering and can decree discipline for his people, even though he does do that, that he authors, that he, that he controls, he's overseeing it, still, quote, for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good. And this is an essential teaching of scripture that God allows things that he hates in order to achieve the things he loves. He allows things that he despises in order to achieve things he desires. So God's allowing this Assyrian empire, which was an evil empire, and he condemns them for their evil too. He allows them to come and discipline his people whom he intends to save. It's hard. It's a hard truth, but it's an essential one. It's the only way you can reconcile the problem of pain in this world, actually, with an all-powerful and loving God. It's the only way humans still have choice, still have a, a will, and yet God is in complete control of all things. That he allows evil to happen in order to achieve good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And where do we see this clearly? All right, nowhere more clear than the cross. No more clear than in the cross when Jesus goes and something evil, something unthinkable happens to him. He's murdered, condemned as a sinner. You think God enjoyed that? No way. He allowed something he hated for the good of the world to achieve something he loves. So this reckoning, this judgment, this justice of Christ, right, it's already begun at the cross. He's already paid the sin, paid for the sin his people have incurred, right? He's already gone there. It's already begun, but it's also happening now. Right? It's not just a past thing or a future thing. It's something that's happening now. In Matthew 19, he says, the apostles are going to sit where? On 12 thrones, judging all of Israel, his people, the church. And the apostles are going to represent Christ and his authority on earth. And this thread of representation you see all the way back to the garden. Adam is God's representative on the earth. 
Hosea says the priests and the kings are God's representatives to Israel, and they're doing a terrible job. And here the apostles, Christ says, are going to be his representatives in the church. This reckoning of Christ also comes with this rescuing of Christ. This is our final point here. Hosea 5.15, the Lord says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. You might think after 700 years of warnings, 700 years of turning their backs on God, you might think that he's ready to just wash his hands of this people. And up until verse 15, you kind of get the sense that that's what's happening. Israel's gone too far. God's super mad. He's going to cut ties. He's going to move on. He still has the southern kingdom, right? He can raise up children from Abraham from anywhere he wants. He can, he's done with this group. But verse 15 continues, thank God, a timeless theme in the scripture regarding God's character. And this theme that is summarized here by a single word. Did you catch it in verse 15? I'm going back to my place until. I'm done with you until. Until what? Until you come looking for me again. Until you desire me again. Until you want me. Until your idols have left you so broken and so battered and so bruised and so hopeless that you say, what am I doing? What am I doing with my life? I've got to go back to the one who promises to care for me, who has always been with me, who has promised to never forsake me. God would withdraw from the kingdom of Israel until that happened. And that's amazing, right? That he's still going to leave this door of hope cracked for whoever might come looking for it. In their distress, they seek him earnestly. Not in pretense or lip service, but earnestly, wholeheartedly. No more idols. No more one foot in this camp, one foot in that camp. But seeking God, searching for God. That's what seeking means, to go on a search for him. Any of you who've ever been on a search before, you know this. You have to what? You gotta leave stuff behind. Can't bring all your stuff with you on a search. Can't bring your idols with you on a search. You seek him wholeheartedly, deeply looking, longing, asking for him to come to be with you. And that's what Peter says in our Matthew 19, right? He says, okay, well, we left everything in search of you, right? We are earnestly, wholeheartedly seeking you, Lord. No idols left that we know of. They'll be exposed later, but we're earnestly seeking. As far as I know, I'm, we're leaving things behind. We're coming, following you. What about us? What will we have, he says. And Jesus says to them, right, anyone, anyone 
has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. That's forever. That's unending life. See, he says, when you leave everything for Jesus, you get everything that matters back forever. The apostles have given up family members, houses, land. What is that? It's what the rich young ruler couldn't give up. It's their idols. They've given up their idols to walk with Jesus. Their security is in him alone, nowhere else. This vow of poverty they take is a vow of faith. Say, I believe in you. I trust you. I doubt those things I used to live for. I'm not doubting you. So my friend is a pastor in the inner city of Atlanta, and he um, was... Uh, raised in a missionary family in Japan. He's one of eight or nine kids. Um, and yet, he didn't come to faith. He wasn't converted to Christ until he was a young adult. It happened this way. His very old and very frail grandfather had moved into a terrible neighborhood in New Jersey so that he could save teens in gangs from killing themselves. A friend who was studying to go in business and would have been a really great businessman um, goes to New Jersey to tell his grandfather that he's crazy and that he needs to get out of this city because he's going to die. He said when he got there, the house was like, had mold and water damage, like leaking. His granddad was renting this old place. And his granddad said, I'm staying. And for weeks, my friend tried to convince his granddad to leave. And for weeks, he watched what he would describe as the most powerful display of love and of faith that he had ever witnessed in his life as he watched his old, frail granddad go out into the streets where these gangs are literally murdering each other with the gun violence, and he begins to tell them about Jesus, begins to invite them into his home and tell them about Jesus, and his grandfather led him to faith. He went there to save his granddad, and his granddad ironically ended up saving him so the application is this, that not only is idolatry a house on fire, not only is Christ reckoning and rescuing us from that, but that as we leave idols, as we seek Jesus and leave everything else behind, there is no greater apologetic or proof to your neighbors, your friends, your family members, your children than self-denial. Self-denial, taking up a cross of Jesus out of love for him, love for neighbor. That's how the kingdom goes forth. Indulgence is a trap. Accumulation is a trap. And that's why it was rocking my world this week because I'm like, holy smokes, how much do I indulge? Holy smokes, how much do I want to accumulate? My, how often is my heart saying more, more, more? Yet God is saying, no, no. 
No. I am enough. Christ is enough. This vow of poverty is a vow of faith. It's a vow of belief. It's a vow of saying, I trust you, Lord. I trust your word. I trust your work. I trust your people, your church. I trust you, Lord. We know house fires were a lot more common back in the day, back before the smoke alarms. And we know the reason John Wesley was almost lost in the fire was because he was asleep. No alarm, couldn't smell the smoke until it was too late. This morning is the alarm. This morning is the sounding of the bell saying, wake up, wake up wherever you are, wake up and come to Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.